The title of our sermon is God Sustains His Cause. The scripture, 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22, in their series, Promise of the Messianic Kingdom. This is the very word of God. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to David's aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to David, You shall not longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushite, the Hushathite, excuse me, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giant. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, and Elena, the son of Jared Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, a different Goliath, same name, different giant, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was a descendant from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descendants from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of David's servants. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us how you sustain your cause, that you would call us to your promises, that you would call us to walk, O oh Father, God, circumspectly, that you would call us to walk in trust of the God who sustains his cause, who sustains his ministers, who sustains his people, his servants, the God who ensures that his name will be above all other names. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us mightily through your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated, beloved. Our passage today seems to be a small collection of heroic deeds by David's men. And it almost seems out of place with the narrative before and what is to follow. However, our passage is actually crucial because in it we see the kingdom under divine protection. We learn that God sustains both the kings, his ministers, and the kingdom. All that belong to God is sustained by the God of heaven. And that is good news for you and for me. And so with that in mind, we turn our attention to verses 15 through 17, where we see that God preserves his ministers. God preserves his ministers. The Bible tells us that there was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and that there was this giant named Ishi-Binab who came. He was a descendant of the giant, and he thought that he had an opportunity to kill David, but instead this man himself was killed. Our story that introduces us to a relative of Goliath, Ishi-Binab. From the passage, we conclude that this man was also a giant. He was a relative of Goliath. We are told that his spear had weighed 300 shekels of bronze, which was equivalent to about seven and one half pounds, just the tip of his spear. Uh, it would take a big man to 
be able to launch that with any accuracy over a, peer, over a great distance. We also read that he was equipped with a new sword, a new sword. So there stands this gigantic man with a brand new gleaming sword in his hand and a huge spear in the other, mountain of a man, and he's fighting on behalf of the Philistines. In other words, this man was an imposing figure like the Goliath of old. That's where we're supposed to let our minds wander to. He looked very much like the old Goliath, the one that David took down in his youth. Here we see a towering man of great might, and he's waging war against God's people. Just history is repeating itself, it seems like. He's waging war against God's people. And there is some truth to the thought that some trials and some temptations seem to recycle themselves in our lives. Things that you thought that somehow you had put down somehow take on a second life and seem to come back. Perhaps there's a sin that you've been struggling with or a trial or a temptation, but sometimes it seems that things recycle themselves. You thought you were done with them. You killed Goliath. Goliath is dead. We're free, but here comes Goliath's descendants, and he stands before you, and he looks very much like Goliath himself. How do we fight against those things that by God's grace we have defeated before in our lives? Well, the key to victory in today's battle against the giant of today is the same key that brought victory when we first encountered the old giant, Goliath. The people of God overcome terrible and repeated persecution by doing the very same thing they did at first, entrusting themselves to God and then fighting in God's strength. Isn't that what David did with Goliath? All of Israel was scattered. All of Israel was afraid. The giant would come out, Goliath, and he would curse and cuss at God and curse and cuss at God's people. And every man would flee to his tent. Every man was afraid. No one wanted to fight the giant. And David, a young man, comes into the camp and he hears the words of the giant and his soul is vexed. How dare this, his words, uncircumcised Philistine, Speak such terrible things against God and his people. David is full of indignant uh, honor for God. He cannot believe what he's hearing. And when he sees Israel all failing, his heart then uh, steps forward even more. He says, let no man's heart fail because of this giant. I will fight him. Do you remember that? And everybody thought, well, there's no way this young boy is going to win. They tried to dress him up in armor that was too big for him, David uh, shoes that, puts it to the side, grabs him a couple of stones and a slingshot, and like a shepherd goes out to fight this giant, this man of war. And everybody let him go thinking, this man, this poor David is dead, but better him than me. And so David goes out there, and the giant starts laughing and cursing at God. His words can be paraphrased as such, am I a dog that you throw stick boy at me? He doesn't even look like a man. Look at him. He's skinny. He doesn't look like a soldier. Do I look like I play with sticks? Am I a dog that this is what you send to me? And he starts cursing David by his God. And then David does something unexpected. David opens his mouth. And instead of trying to solve the situation, he says, listen, you uncircumcised Philistine. God sent me here so that the people of Israel could know. They could know that there is a God in heaven who loves them. And you think you're the giant, but you're no giant. I'm the giant. Today, I will cut your head off your shoulders, and I will feed your body to the birds of the air. I will leave your carcass out in the field. 
And as Goliath starts walking towards David, the Bible tells us that David starts running towards Goliath. It's an incredible scene. And he launches a rock, and by God's divine providence and strength, it lodges between the forehead and the giant falls down dead. It is, it is an incredible story, one that we can never forget. That's how David defeated the giant. He entrusted himself to God, and then in God's power, he went into battle when everybody else was afraid. And how do you beat repeating temptations and trials and sins? You entrust yourself to God, and then by God's power, you go straight after them. Amen? And that's what David's men did here. Now we note that in the middle of the conflict, Ishbi Binob noticed that David was struggling in the battle. David was visibly exhausted, lagging behind and in danger of being killed. And at that time of the story, David was an older man now. David was an older man, an elderly man, one would say. The strength of youth, that same strength that God had used to defeat Goliath, was no longer present in his body. And the giant saw an opportunity then, and he moved in for the kill. If he was lagging with the regular soldiers, he could not withstand an onslaught from a giant. What an incredibly ironic victory this would have been for the giant. A young David had killed his ancestor. Now he, Ishi Binghab, could kill an elderly David, kind of like full circle. There is a theological point to be made here. We affirm that God has a way of protecting and sustaining his loved ones. It was God's sovereign leading that caused Abishai to notice the trouble that David was in. And Abishai then rushes to David's aid. He fought with the giant and through divine empowerment, just like David had done long ago, Ishbi Binab killed this giant. It is a wonderful it is a wonderful deliverance, and it is wonderful to learn that David's men were giant killers too. They had learned the skill in the school of David by watching and walking with David, learning from David, and fighting alongside of David. They had learned the secret to give their youth, to give their strength, to give their lives to God, and to allow God to do great things through them. And so just like David, they are giant killers too, and they killed this giant. There's a beautiful lesson for you and me here. And the things we learn, and here's the lesson that the things we learn, we can pass down to the following generations. Amen? The things we learn, we can pass down to the following generations. We can teach the following generations how to deal with life's great struggles, how to deal with life's great giants. Listen, beloved, our legacy is not cemented, not in memorials or history books or statues. Our legacy is cemented in the lives of those that we touched. And David's men were better men because David had been in their lives. If you remember, David's army originally was a bunch of cowards, has-beens, never-wers. They were the people that were rejected, the people that were in debt. That's how they came originally to David. And by the end of David's life, these men are mighty men of war, mighty men of valor. These are men that killed giants too. Being with David had transformed them. Walking with David had transformed them. Listening to David had transformed them. Fighting alongside David had transformed them into these mighty men. It's wonderful to know that as you and I grow older, we can leave behind this same legacy to the younger generation. Walk with us. Talk with us. Listen to us. We've gone through certain things. Learn from what we've learned so that you too can be giant slayers. This close call 
sobered David's men. They came to realize what was obvious, painfully obvious, one might say. David was no longer a mighty man of war. He just couldn't do what he had done before. No matter how used by God a man might be, every man will eventually be hindered by the passage of time. None of us escape death. Amen? It's an impossibility. And so they passed a new war policy, and they literally imposed it on David because they loved David, a solemn covenant. They say to David, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, don't read in this any disrespect by his men, but read it with love. They love David, and they realize how important David was. And they said, we cannot go to battle and be worried that some Philistine might end up killing you because you're now an elderly man and can't do what you used to do before. You're too important to Israel. We love you too much. We need you too much on the throne to let you come with us in battle anymore. And I love the fact that David was humble enough, humble enough to say, okay. As we get older, sometimes we can become obstinate, right? To the very things that are obvious to everybody else. And David was humble enough to say, you're right, I'm done. This part of my life is now over. I'm sure it wasn't easy. David had been a warrior. David had been a fighter all his life. David had been the protector of Israel. He was the man that everybody looked to. It must have, must have been incredibly difficult for him to say, you're right. But David seems to have settled into the new role that God had for him. The stakes for Israel were too high, the risk too significant. Should David's life be taken in battle, Israel would stumble in darkness and confusion. King David's life meant light for Israel. His death would spell spiritual darkness. Now, beloved, I know what you're thinking, that there's no man who is irreplaceable. Amen. I agree with that. When God is done with me, he will raise somebody else. Amen. There's no man that's irresistible, irreplaceable. Excuse me. When we look at Moses, probably the greatest leader of all time, Joshua stepped in, and he did a very good job of leading the people of God. No man is irreplaceable. The apostles are gone, right? No man is irreplaceable. We know that. However... David was God's appointed king who led Israel into the presence of the true king. And there was no one ready to take his place yet. God has not elevated someone to take his place yet. Solomon would eventually, but not yet. He wasn't ready yet. So in this stage of history, David's an older man and there's no one ready to replace him. And he is literally the man that guides the people into the throne room of grace. And so the men say, we, we can't afford to take you into battle anymore. It, it, you know, you're going to die in battle, and Israel will be lost. So in a genuine sense, at this point, David was Israel. David was Israel. David was God's king who guided Israel on the path of holiness. And beloved, this is another wonderful lesson for you and I. As we age, we might not be able to do what we had done before, but we are still valuable and beneficial in the hands of God. Praise God to be. Amen. Praise God for that truth. I might not be able to go into war like I used to, but I'm still of value in the hands of God. And that's a good lesson for this church to hear. David cannot fight on the battlefield anymore, but he can still lead the nation's heart toward God. And I would suggest to you that that second part was greater than the first now because he had men who can fight now on behalf of God. 
that was still there. But now he can focus all his attention on making sure that Israel loved God appropriately. And because of age and experience and hard knocks, he was a better leader at the end than he was at the beginning. And so Israel was going to reap the benefit of the wisdom that he had learned through life. And so this is a good thing for you and I to consider. So listen here. If you're an older person who cannot do the things you used to do, do the things that you can still do and do them well for the kingdom of God. Amen? Pass down, pass down your wisdom. Pass down your life experience to the younger people. And you younger people realize and protect the older people. They cannot do what they used to do, but what they can give is so amazing. Learn from them. Sometimes we look at older people like they have nothing to give. And that is a terrible mistake. One that Israel did not commit here. So the younger people can learn from the older people. Amen. And the older people can lead the younger people and teach. We might not be able to do what we used to. But those things that we can still do are a great benefit to the kingdom and to the people of God. And so we see a wonderful symbiotic relationship here. Everyone working together for the greatest purpose that Israel would go forward. And for that purpose, David needed to step away from commanding his people. He needed just to settle on the throne and make sure his people love God. Praise God for this truth. Sometimes God uses a man in a mighty way like David. And I, as we read in scripture, sometimes our heart says, Lord, I want you to use me like you used David. Or I want you to use me like you used Moses. Or I want you to use me like you used Paul. The Bible has these great towering figures, these heroes of ours, right? That we look back and say, that one, wow. And David was one of those men. And sometimes God uses a man in a mighty way like this. Here we cannot help but to think that about these critical moments in redemptive history when the people and the security of many of God's people seem to rest on the shoulders of one man, Moses leading the people. As Moses went, so went the nation. David, as David went, so went the nation. Paul, as Paul went, so did the church, it seems like. Great man that God used incredibly to do just phenomenal things. And these are men, these are ministers of God who are under attack all the time. For the enemy hates those who would lead the people of God. If you remember, Pharaoh tried to kill Moses. David was persecuted by Saul and by Absalom. Paul was relentlessly hounded by the Caesars and the Herods of his time, by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These great men always had someone, some messenger of Satan to come and try to destroy the work of God. But the God of heaven has always defended his sovereignty. The God of heaven preserves the seed, the deliverer, the king, the minister, the man of God, the pharaohs, herods, and Caesars of this world cannot prevail against God's purpose or his ordained ministers. And for that we say, praise be to God. Amen? So our first lesson here, the first thing we see above everything else, as we have talked already, is that God preserves his ministers. God preserves his ministers. Our second point is that God honors his servants. Let's look at verses 17 through 19 in verse 21. 
We have Abishai here. The Bible says the son of Sariah came to the aid of David. We have we have Sibakai here. We have Elena here. We have Jonathan here. We have all the we have four men listed for us. Because Abishai, Sibakai, Elena, and Jonathan fought for the covenant people. They are presented in this story as God's servants. These are men that killed giants. And they did so on behalf of Israel's sake. Interestingly, the military record mentions each of these warriors by his full name. We have Abishai, the son of Zariah, Sibakai, the Hushathite, Elena, the son of Jari, and Jonathan, the son of Shimi, who happens to be David's brother. God gives us their first name, if you will, and almost in our modern vernacular, their last name. He makes sure that we know who these men are. And I have a feeling that if before today, if I asked you who was Elena, the Hushathite, you would have said who? Amen? If I asked you who was Sibachai in the scriptures, you would have said what? These are not names that we're used to. We're used to the great names that did incredible things. Moses and David and Paul, Jeremiah and Isaiah. We, we're used to those names, but these random names that they come in and they do one thing and they're gone. And We tend to forget people like these, but here they are. God honors these men who yielded themselves to him. These men at great risk had fought against these giants, the descendants of Raphaim. These soldiers had endangered their very lives to do these extraordinary deeds. And even though all praise belongs to God who does the work, amen, his chosen instruments must be respected and honored by the saints. These were men yielded to God. So God writes their name in the book that shall never pass in the Bible. These men will never be forgotten. They will forever be listed in the pages of scriptures as David's giant killers. Amen? David's giant killers. And so you might not know who they are. You might leave this place and never remember those names again. They might not seem important. And I would tell you that about 99% of the church has no idea who these men are. But God knows who they are. Amen? They weren't David. They didn't do what David did. But they were men given to the Lord whom God used in an incredible way. And so I'm here to tell you that God honors his servants. You might not be a David. You might not be a Moses. You might never be a Paul. You might never teach from a pulpit. You might never lead a group of people. But God knows who you are. If you've given yourself to God and in your daily lives you follow his call, God knows who you are. Amen? The church might never, never know who you are, but God knows who you are. So learn this lesson, beloved. The Bible is filled with ordinary people who, trusting in God, were used mightily. Sometimes we have their names like we have here. And other times we don't even know who their names are. God doesn't even list their names. But rest assured, God knows each and every one of them. God knows each Christian who has answered his call and marched forward against incredible odds entrusting their very lives into the hands of the Creator. An example of this truth is found in Romans 16, 3-4. If I asked you who was Prisca and who was Aquila, you might say, well, I remember reading something about them. Weren't they the ones that sat with that one guy who 
was talking with Paul and kind of taught him better along the way. That's about as much as we might remember. But the word of God is very clear. Paul says, Greet Prisca and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Pay attention. It says, Who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. We all recognize what God has done through them. They risked their necks for me, says Paul. You see, you might not remember who Prisca and Aquila is, but God knows them. And here they're listed as honorable people who had done everything within their human power to make sure that the gospel went forward in the form of protecting Paul, the apostle. Amen? Maybe they hid them. Maybe they hit them. Maybe they helped them escape a bad situation. We don't know what they did, but they risked their very lives for the gospel. And most of the church has no idea who these people are. But God knows. And God knows that God knows that widow, we don't even know her name, who put in the two mites. God knows her name. Amen? That widow who gave everything she had for the sake of the kingdom. God knows her name. And God knows your name if you're his. Amen? Some people say, Pastor, I don't feel like I do enough for the kingdom of God and ministry and this and that. Serve God right where you are. Do the best you can with what God has given. Answer his call. Love him with everything you have and be rest assured that God knows your name. Amen? Another example is found in Acts 15, 25 to 26, where the men literally go unnamed. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men, we don't know who they are, and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. We know who they are, but not the men who accompany them. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men to be honored. Amen? Men to thank God for. But we don't know who they are, but God knows. Have you heard of the name Epaphroditus? You might be going, yeah, I think he's in the New Testament somewhere. And you're, you'd be right. Sounds like a sickness more than it sounds like a name, a prophetitis. But listen to what the Bible says about him. So receive a prophetitis in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Men to be honored. Amen. We might not remember them, but God knows who they are. I think there are going to be more people in heaven who we will have no idea who they were in life, but who have done such great things for the kingdom of God. If every night you sit there and you pray for me as your minister, that God would keep me from temptation, that God would keep me from falling, that God would protect me and my family, that God would be with my wife Rosie, and that God would be with my kids, that God would give me his words, that God would keep me humble, whatever it is you might be praying. I might never know that you're doing that for me. Not until I get to heaven. But God knows, and God sees, and God hears. If you see that person that's just hurting, and you go and you minister to them, the word of God, nobody might know. There might not be an applause by Christians because you've done this great work for the kingdom of God. But God knows. God knows down to the... New Testament tells us those who bless the minister with a cup of cold water will be recompensed. God takes note of all that you do for the kingdom of God. And although you might think it's not great, the little things that you're doing, 
All those little things add up to a great faithfulness to God. Amen? So I'm encouraging you to continue to serve God. You're not a Moses. You're not a David. Okay, that's praise God. But you might be a Jonathan. You might be a Sibachai. Most people don't know who they are, but God knows. And God loves and honors. Praise God for this truth. In order to make our next point that God fulfills his promise, we would have to leave our portion of scripture and we'd have to go to Genesis. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21? Genesis 15, 18 to 21. Our next point, our first point is that God sustains his ministers. Our second point is that God honors his servants. Our third point is that God fulfills his promise. Genesis 15, 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites. The Hittites, the Parasites, and read with me, the Rephaim. Who are the Rephaim? Goliath and his descendancy. The Hittites, the Parasites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Kirkishites, and the Jebusites. Why did I read that portion of scripture to you? God had promised in Genesis 15, hundreds of years before, that one day the Rephaim would be wiped off the face of the earth. All four of the giant aggressors in our story are said to be from the offspring of the Repha. They belong to a group of Rephaim who lived in Palestine land before the conquests and were notorious for their humongous size. So it seems that Goliath was a Rephaim. And these last four giants that we have here, listen, are the last four descendants of that clan. And God wipes them down like he promised that he would for the sake of his people. God always fulfills his promises. Amen. It might be a promise made right now and fulfilled right now. It might be a promise now and 2,000 years later. But God fulfills his promises. The last of Goliath's descendants were these four Rephaim serving with the Philistines. Their death at the hands of David's men teaches us about the reliability of God's promises. What God promised in Genesis 15 is here now completed. No more Rephaim left. No more giants after the last one is killed. Not only had God fulfilled his word about the Rephaim, but he has also delivered Israel from the Philistines as well. The Bible says that there was war between Israel and Philistia, and Israel won every single one of those war. Why is that? Well, 2 Samuel 3.18. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So here you have the fulfillment of two promises. David conquers the what? Philistines and brings them into tribute, and he kills the who? Rephaim from Genesis 15. All of this so that the people of God could be free. God keeps his promises. Amen? And you need to know that. And I need to know that. 
What Saul's regime did not do, David's by God's power did. And the theology of our passage is clear. God's promises prove firm even to the very end. Time and distance do not matter. What God promises, he will bring to pass. Like I said before, you and I need to hear and understand this truth. Because as we march toward the conclusion of all time, we should be an encouraged people because God is faithful to his promise. And there are going to be hard times in your life where you're going to want to question the veracity of the promises of God. Perhaps God has forgotten me. You see, when you say that, you're questioning the veracity of, I will always be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Perhaps God is done with me. When you say that, you're questioning the promise. The promise is that he who began a good work will see it to the very what? And perhaps God is condemning me. When you say that, you're, you're questioning the veracity of there is now no condemnation for those who are in what? Christ Jesus. You see, we have a tendency, don't we, to question the promises of God, especially during difficult times. Don't do it, beloved. The Rephaim stood no chance. Once Genesis 15 was spoken, once God said, I'm going to deliver you from them, they were a humongous people, a land of giants, and slowly over time God whittled them away until there's four left, and David's men come in and kill them off. Why? Because God has spoken. Amen? And we can trust our God. I love what 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says to us. God is faithful Read with me again. God is faithful. That's all you need to remember. In those times that are difficult, in those times when you want to question God, you need to step back and say, God is faithful. I'm faithless, but he is faithful. Amen? And so I will not question. I will not bring into, into doubt. I will not smear the name of God by questioning his integrity or his intentions Questioning him as a promise keeper. God will do what he said. He will deliver me one day finally into his presence. Amen. Beloved, God loves his people and God keeps his promises. Our final point that we should make today is in verses 20 to 22. And it's the following. God silences his enemies. I love this. There will come a time where all mouths will be shut before God. What does the Bible says? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That moment is coming. It's not here yet. But it's, every mouth will be silenced. There will be no more blasphemy. There will be no more taunting of God or his people. All that will be left in the universe. The universe will be filled with the praises of the saints about the greatness of our God. And there will be no other voices. Not one voice of dissent. What a wonderful day that will be. Amen? God silences his enemy. Let's look at verse 20 to 22. And I will read this portion to you. It says, And there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was a descendant from the giants. And when he had taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. 
as God has promised that he would do. The writer gives us a description of this warrior, but not his name. He was unusually impressive. He calls him a man of great stature, a huge soldier. And what made him more striking was the fact that he had 24 fingers and toes. You couldn't help but look at his hands, right? You couldn't help but look down at his sandals and say, that's just not normal. A man had 24 fingers and toes, six in each hand. It kind of freaked everybody out, along with his size and stature. It just made him look more monstrous in the eyes of the people. You couldn't help but see it. But, beloved, the problem with this man was not his fingers, was not his hands or his toes. The problem with this man was his blasphemous tongue. He had not learned the lesson he should have learned. Like his old ancestor Goliath who stood and cursed and cussed at God and his people, this man does the very same thing. Not remembering what had happened to Goliath, how he lost his head for such blasphemy. The Bible tells us quite simply, he taunted Israel. And by taunting Israel, he was taunting whom? God. He taunted Israel. The verb for taunted here is harap, and it means to reproach, to defy, to mock, to deride, to harass with words, to belittle. It is the verb used repeatedly of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. That's exactly what he did with Israel and with Israel's God. as He blasphemed God in Israel. So the man is the same. He stands there, impressive, with all his fingers and all his toes, and with his blasphemous tongue, he reproaches God by reproaching his people. Like his ancestor before, ancestor before him, the giant began to mock and deride God. He thought it was ridiculous that Israel would believe in a God who delivers. He verbally assaulted the God of heaven in earshot of his people. Sinners don't always learn the lessons they should have learned. Neither does this man. So the giant mocks God. He he, he speaks evil of him and his people. And we must ask ourselves at this point, what did he think would happen? Would God allow the sinful man to blaspheme his holy name and character? And the answer obviously was what? No. All blasphemers will one day have their part in the lake of... That's what the Bible promises. God will not allow any blasphemy to go unpunished. You might live... And die as a blasphemer, but rest assured, all blasphemers will have their part in the lake of what? Fire. No blasphemer gets away unless he repents. So we know what happened to Goliath. And therefore, without having to be told here, we know what will happen to this no-name blasphemer. This ignorant giant refused to learn from the lesson of the past. And that lesson is that he who mocks and derides God's people also mocks and derides their God. We've visited this portion of Scripture so many times before. Let us do it one more. Acts 26, 13 through 15. Paul, the apostle speaking, says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he, we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not the Christians, but me. Well, Christ was in heaven. Christ was delivered from all pain and suffering. It was his people who Saul was persecuting, but Jesus identifies with his people. 
Excuse me. So to mock and persecute the people of God was to persecute the God of the people. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is taking this personally. He's upset. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're not persecuting the church. You're persecuting me. We know this, don't we? But we quickly forget it. When someone speaks evil of us or gets angry at us because of our faith, when we tell someone about Jesus and they push us to the side, we take it personally. Why? Why? It's not us that they're rejecting. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Never comes out of the mouth of Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Do you see it? We're so sensitive sometimes. We get our feelings hurt too easily as Christians. Well, they're rejecting me and they don't love me because I'm a Christian. No, they're rejecting and they don't love you because they hate the Christ that you serve. It has nothing to do with you. You're just an instrument that reminds them of Christ. And therefore, in their lashing out against Christ, they're lashing out against you. Stop taking it personally. Amen? Stop taking it personally. So we come back to our story and we ask, what happened? What happened here? Well, so what happened to this one blasphemer is what happened to the other Goliath. This giant make the same end. You know what I've learned? And what the Bible teaches us that dead men cannot blaspheme God. Amen? Dead men cannot blaspheme God. And so he's blaspheming. God says, we'll just, we'll just have you killed. And the blasphemy is what? Over. Goliath lost his head and this man is killed in battle and the blasphemy stops. And that person who used to blaspheme God now in death gives witness to God. The giant dies. His death is another promise of what is to come. Another assurance of what will be at the end times. Another picture of how it will be at the end of life, at the end of times, when God delivers his people from all persecutors, all blasphemers. There he is lying dead, but his tongue now is speaking a different tune. His tongue, his lifeless tongue is saying, this is what happens to all who blaspheme. He is a witness to what happens to the enemies of God. Isaiah 54, 17. You've read this portion before. It says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. At the end of time, beloved, all Christians will stand before the Lord vindicated. Amen? All the evil that was said about us because of our faith in Christ will be proven false. And we will shine. We will be with the Lord. And all blasphemers who do not repent will have their part in the lake of what? Fire. Beloved, dead men cannot blaspheme God. Dead men cannot blaspheme God. And so God delivers his people from these types of men.
So what do we learn from all of this, beloved? Well, just what we said at the beginning, that God sustains his cause. Amen? If you are one of his ministers, God sustains his ministers. If you're not one of his ministers, but you're one of his servants, which should encompass all of us here, God knows you and knows your faithfulness. Keep doing what you're doing. The church might not know who you are. They might not remember your name ever. You will never be quoted like a Spurgeon is quoted or a great man of God like that is quoted. But know this, that God knows you and he honors you. Amen? And that's a good thing. Remember that God keeps his promises even if they're hundreds of years apart. And remember this, last, last lesson for us to consider, that God silences his enemies. And one day, we will get that eternal silence, amen, from them. And all that will be left is the praises of the people of God for all eternity. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word, as God, hopefully, the Holy Spirit applies it to your heart. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a true word, a word that we needed. A word, oh Father God, that teaches us much. We pray, oh Lord, that you would cement these things in the heart of the saints. That they would leave here encouraged. Knowing that you sustain the minister. That you honor the servants. That you fulfill your promises. And that you silence your enemies. Father, as we consider these things in our lives, let us then be emboldened to act and move for the kingdom of God. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.